Hey guys, welcome to the show today uh, and happy almost Thanksgiving. Uh, I wanted to thank you guys for all of the support, uh, the sharing, the listening of this podcast. Um, we have an exciting announcement about the podcast. We have grown so much that we recently almost cracked the top 10 in the news commentary category for Apple iTunes podcast. We were number 11 uh, right under the Michael Knowles show. Um, and so this week, yeah, was huge for the podcast and all of the wonderful people at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills who supported the White Rose Resistance and tuned in to the podcast and left ratings and reviews. Those little things actually help. It really drives the show up. So we wanted to share my message with you today from November 13th at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills for my ninth and final stop of our fall tour for the White Rose Resistance National Life Tour, sponsored and promoted by Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA Faith. And I wanted to give a wonderful thanks to Pastor Jack Hibbs, the entire team at the church, and all of you who attended or tuned in live for this message that I have spent so much time crafting and perfecting uh, to arrange the historical, uh, theological, cultural, and political puzzle pieces uh, of perhaps the last couple hundred years to create a picture of how we got here, the ideas and the pontiffs of progressivism who were more dogmatic and committed to their ideology than most of the Christians were to theirs. Um, Ronald Reagan was right. Evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. And it's time for the quote-unquote good people who know better to wake up and reassert their stewardship and responsibility in the public square for the direction of the country and the abolition of abortion. So please share this episode with a friend, a pro-choice Christian, a Christian who votes for Democrats, um, or a pagan friend uh, to begin opening up their eyes and removing the spiritual veil of politics and science that has been used by these demonically inspired progressive activists to upend society. This is perhaps my magnum opus and the most important message I've ever given. Welcome to the White Rose Resistance at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. Buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Good morning, Calvary Chapel. It is exciting to be with all of you guys right now. Obviously, I'm not here, but uh, you are going to be exposed to a young man who I have been following for a long time. Uh, we've all been supporting him for a long time. And what God is doing through him is literally shaking the demonic strongholds and the worldview mindset of people who have a complete opposite view than from what God has regarding life. I am talking about Seth Gruber. Seth Gruber is a warrior brother that has the mantle of pro-life and he has got the wits he has got the personality, he has got the knowledge and the passion to speak on this topic because God has called him to do this. And you're going to be baptized into his ministry uh, in just a moment. But I love him, his courage, 
his, his ability to defend the unborn. I'm wondering if there could be some way in eternity that those whose lives were spared would be able to hear the argument that Seth gave way back when, when their lives were saved. Because I believe God is using Seth to affect so many people and most of them yet unborn. So church family, please give a warm welcome to my good friend and faithful brother, Seth Gruber. Hi. Good morning. No, 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 no. I went over last service, so stop. I gotta get right into it. Jack's gonna be texting me on stage like, stop it, too long. Uh, good morning, wonderful to be with you guys. Uh, as, as I always say, my, my second favorite church only because I, I went to Godspeed Calvary Chapel with Pastor Rob McCoy, and so I can't, I'll get in trouble. I'll get in trouble with Pastor Rob if I, you know. <laughs> uh, wonderful to see you guys. Uh, if, if you're newer to this church or you're not aware of my ministry and my humble position in the pro-life movement, I just wanna give you a little, just a sneak preview or vignette of myself just so, because I wanna meet you. I want you to be familiar with me so you're not like, who is this kook that Jack let preach? Because uh, we're gonna, we're gonna go uh, 60,000 feet today and do a history of the entire secular moral revolution and their high pontiffs of progressivism that were more dogmatic about their religion in the public square than the Christians were for theirs. So before we get to that, uh, my name is Seth Gruber. I've been a pro-life activist since I was a fetus. Um, and I, I'm, actually, uh, I'm actually not joking. Uh, I mean, it gets laughs, but I'm actually not joking. See, my mother was the executive director of a pregnancy resource center in the late 1980s and early 1990s in Azusa, California called Living Alternatives uh, across the street from APU, somewhere you should never send your children, by the way, but that's a sermon for another time, amen? Um, who, I mean, who are what C.S. Lewis meant when he said men without chests or what Bonhoeffer meant when he said cheap grace Christians and academic professorial Christians who are more interested in creating advocates for the other side under the veneer of Christianity than pure and undefiled religion, but I digress. So my mother was the executive director of that pregnancy resource center and only stepped down from directing that pregnancy center when she gave birth to me. Now listen, I've been reliably informed by the follow the science Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci communist degenerates that the body in her body is not her body, right? What's the central rallying cry of the entire pro-abortion movement? My body, my choice. So that means that how many bodies are involved? One. My body, my choice, it's just a mom's body, right? So according to the law of transitive property, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So therefore, because it was her body, her choice, therefore I was part of my mother's body the entire time, which means that it wasn't my body. It was just my mom's body the whole time, which means that every baby my mom saved from abortion as a pro-life pregnancy center director were babies I saved from abortion <laughs> because it was just her body. Follow the science, right? And I would like to ban that phrase from American political discourse, by the way. You see, science is now a meaningless term in the lexicon of the left, amen? Uh, follow the science just means our kooky, religious, anthropological, philosophical view of personhood that we masquerade as the science to smear you as science deniers and censor you online because uh, you don't, you're not on board with our Gnostic dualism, kooky, religious heresy of how we view the human person and image bearers of God. All right, amen, that's what they really mean. Um, and so of course, it's not ironic that everyone who, who defended quadrupled, uh, well, we don't want this pulled from YouTube live stream, uh, a certain thing that you got that was supposed to protect you from a certain type of uh, disease or virus. Uh, and, and they're the same people who say men can be women and women can be men. 
Um, and they're the same people who say preborn babies aren't persons. It's just pregnancy tissue. Uh, and, and so abortion is healthcare. By the way, abortion is not healthcare because pregnancy is not a disease and babies aren't tumors. Go, go tweet that to uh, Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci, right? But my point is this, it should not surprise you that the left has always labeled their demonic, kooky assault against the image of God and, and, and those created in his image as just the science or just politics because the left knows how many pastors fear the label politics. So they'll label any demonic assault against babies, children, and the family as just the politics to keep the politically impotent pastors silent. We have been fulfilling my pastor Rob McCoy's prophetic warning when he says, we as the church have been waiting downstream to pick up human heartache that we helped create through our political apathy upstream. Oh, because you just preach the gospel. Listen, if standing against the genocide of 65 million babies or more in America alone since 1973 makes me a political hack, fine. I'm the greatest political hack you've ever met, but I'm not gonna allow the other side to define the terms of engagement to silence the only institution that can turn this genocide and cultural war around in the first place, the bride of Christ. So, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, the most awoke congregation in California with one of my earthly heroes, Pastor Jack Hibbs, who I've always said was as if he arrived in a DeLorean time machine with Marty McFly from 1776 in a black robe regiment. It's like, it's like your pastor literally traveled from 1776. That's your pastor. It's like, oh man, I wish I could like, I wish I could draw out that moral and spiritual clarity from Jack and inject it as a booster shot into the arms of American pastors. And I could end abortion in this country in one year because Courage is contagious, but so is cowardice. And it's about time that pastors replicate the example of the famous and <laughs> amazing Jack Hibbs and take responsibility for this republic. So that's my heritage, that's my background. And due to the faithfulness, kindness, and generosity of Jack in this congregation, I was in more pulpits in a two-year period after the scandemic than any pro-life speaker in the world. Um, and my wife was like, you have to stop taking these speaking gigs in churches. Like it was every Sunday all across the country because of Jack and because of Rob pouring kerosene on my opportunities and ministries. And I'll tell you something, babies were saved and people got engaged in sidewalk counseling because of my humble message that I was only allowed to share with more Christians because Jack opened up his network and, and endorsements of me. And then you guys, through your tithing and supporting me as a domestic terrorist, a domestic missionary, domestic <laughs> missionary, um, uh, enabled youth groups and churches um, who wanted my message but couldn't afford the airfare and the hotel and everything. And, and then Chino Hills just says, hey, Jack just says, we got that. Uh, and so people around the country got engaged in the pro-life fight because of your faithfulness and support of, of, of me. So, so thank you. It means so much. It's wonderful to be here with you. Hey, I think it's providential. I'm here on November, uh, is it 12th or 13th? Goodness gracious. I was in so many time zones. I was in New Mexico and then Dallas, Fort Worth, and then, and then here. Um, I was supposed to be here last Sunday. And then Jack said, actually, it makes more sense next Sunday. But that was before Prop 1. That was before everything. And here we are the first Sunday of the Bride of Christ gathering in America since Prop 1 
Vermont, Michigan, also writing abortion through point of birth into the state constitution. So just so you know what we're talking about when we talk about these things, you know, what does the left say? The third trimester abortion is a fiction and a fantasy. They say like those late-term abortions, that never really happens. Well, actually Planned Parenthood statistical research branch reports that about 12 or 13,000 babies are killed every year in America after 21 weeks. So over 13,000 babies are killed every year in those late trimester stages that they tell you is a fiction and a fantasy and never really happens. So I, I, just, I will have nothing to do with the euphemistic bigotry of the culture of death that redefines all of their genocidal assaults against babies as just healthcare, women's rights, feminism, equality, equity, blah, 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 blah. We need to speak very clearly about politics and what these ideas allow in our land. So here's, here's a 30-second vignette. When you're talking about third trimester abortions, which is now a protected right in the California state constitution, you're talking about injecting potassium chloride or digoxin through a needle through the mother's abdomen, puncturing the amniotic sac, and that needle either goes straight into the baby's skull or their heart. You inject that potassium chloride, which is also often used for criminals on death row to induce cardiac arrest to kill them. So the same drugs that are often used to kill criminals who are guilty of capital punishment is also used to kill innocent babies in the womb. Shocker, there you go, there's the culture of death. It induces cardiac arrest, the baby dies in the womb, and then you deliver a dead child, and then Kamala Harris and the entire liberal establishment helps cover up the trafficking of dead baby body parts and organs on the black market in California. So I, I, you just need to know that what these policies and ideas allow is very real, it's very demonic, but we need to understand whence these ideas come. And so we'll get into that in just a second, but I just wanted to share this with you guys. Uh, Jeremiah 7, let's open up your Bible, this is Jeremiah 7. Just a short passage here. Um, I, I wasn't planning on showing the, sharing this, but this morning it just felt, just hit me like a prophetic ton of, ton of bricks. And uh, there's nothing new under the sun, church, right? Jeremiah 7, right after Isaiah. Uh, almost middle of the Bible, but a little after. Jeremiah 7, 30. Okay, let's just read this briefly. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it didn't even come into my mind. Now, God's omniscient, right? So it's, he's embellishing language to communicate the horror of what's happening. Of course, God knew in his mind that it would happen. He's saying, this is so heinous and horrific. It, wouldn't, it didn't even occur to me that you would pass your children through the fire to Baal or to Moloch. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and none will frighten them away and I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. I'm gonna silence the good and the hope and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the land shall become a waste. Oh, but Seth, that was God talking to the Israelites about their complicity in child sacrifice. You see, we're a pro-life church, so we're not complicit in child sacrifice the way the Israelites were. So that's actually not very compassionate or nice of you to speak that way about the Bible, because that's a different context. And I don't really like how you're trying to attribute complicity in child sacrifice to me. I'm not like the Israelites then. Hey, okay, we're not participating in Canaanite liturgies of child sacrifice. Except for Leviticus 20 which would disprove that false narrative. In Leviticus 20, 
God tells the Israelites, once again, you have sacrificed your sons and daughters to demons. And he says, if any of you, go read it, Leviticus 20, if any of you do sacrifice your children to Moloch, or if any of you do turn your face from that man, you know, when he does that, when he does the child sacrifice thingy, and you turn your face from that man, monkey see no evil, then I will cut you off from among the people. You and the rest of you who follow after that man in whoring yourselves, prostituting yourselves after Moloch. Not to mention that over 40%, about 40% of abortions in America are obtained by women who say that they attend church at least on a weekly basis. And most churches, unlike this one, were not filing lawsuits to try to stop the state of California from using the healthcare plans at this church to subsidize abortions. Most churches are happy to go along with that and include reimbursements for child sacrifice in their healthcare plans. Oh, really? But we're not complicit? We have two options, church, in this late hour of the American culture war. As pro-life obstetricians are trying to be required by the Biden administration to perform abortions upon threat of career termination because they want to categorize a refusal to give a woman an abortion as pregnancy discrimination. By the way, it's funny, they, what they started doing right after Roe was they were trying to make a pregnancy a condition of sex, which is hilarious because now we all know what women are. In other words, they were trying to say, for any pro-life obstetrician that says, I don't perform abortions, then they wanted to amend the civil rights code to also include protections against discrimination based off of sex, which they made linked to pregnancy, so that if a pregnant woman wanted an abortion and a pro-life OBGYN says, I don't do that, they wanted to sue him for pregnancy discrimination. But the only way they could do that was to amend the civil rights code in such a way that linked sex as a condition of pregnancy, which means we all know what women are again. Anytime you tell a Democrat they might not be able to kill quite as many children, they can suddenly define a woman. <laughs> it's fascinating, but this is the same movement that says, uh, what was it, Katrina Jackson, the new Supreme Court justice? Well, what is a woman? I don't know, I'm no biologist. It's like, well, I'm not a meteorologist, but I can tell you when it's raining, right? <laughs> but then if you tell them, hey, Roe v. Wade got overturned, states can, d d d can come up with their own abortion legislation. Now they go, oh, but that's, that's violating women's rights. It's like, because they've based the entire argument for abortion for decades based off of a woman's right, which they're now no longer allowed to define. Welcome to the la-la land of secular progressivism. Right? It's like we're through the looking glass. It's like, where's the Cheshire cat? Like, where's Alice? Like, but that was kind of always the point, right? To create chaos and to upend society so they can recreate it in their own botched images. And so we have many examples in the Bible, despite from the wokey-woke pastors who say the Bible doesn't preach on pro-life, it doesn't address the issue, that's why, that's why I don't address it from the pulpit stuff. We have plenty of examples, not just of how to stand in a culture war like we're experiencing today, but also the examples to follow of godly men and women who stood in a day like today. So for the pastors who say, listen, I'm not, you know, the word abortion doesn't occur in scripture. Uh, Seth, uh, Jack, you're getting so political. You're, such a, you're just a political hack that's prostituting your faith to a political ideology to get more, I don't know, ties from Republicans or something crazy. Which I would say, actually, actually, most pastors are silent on Satan's sacrament lest they lose the tithing of the registered Democrats whose political sensibilities they don't want to offend with the full counsel of God. All right, amen. So listen, if you need proof that the God is very pro-life and the Bible's very pro-life, despite the fact that the word abortion doesn't occur in scripture, I'll prove it to you right now. Luke 1, you got uh, the prenatal John the Baptist doing backflips in the womb, if you remember. 
And it's very interesting. The Greek word used to refer to unborn, unborn John the Baptist, is a Greek word, berephos. That's just the word, okay? Turn to Luke 2, and it says, Mary laid baby Jesus in the manger. What Greek word did the authors of scripture use as they were written, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to refer to a baby Jesus already born? The same Greek word, berephos. Oh, our father uses the same word to refer to a baby in the womb as a baby outside the womb. Oh, for Christians and pastors who would also see no distinction between value, dignity, and a right to life between the baby in the womb and a baby outside the womb. Yes, the Bible is very pro-life. Not to mention the fact that your savior enters human history in a uterus to redeem mankind from their sins. So when Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, little John the Baptist starts doing backflips in the uterus because he recognizes his prenatal deity creator in the womb of another woman, Mary. So you got two unborn babies doing backflips in the womb, recognizing one another's humanity. But because Jesus is the second member of the Trinity and fully God and fully human from the moment of conception, then the prenatal deity, deity fetus is knitting John the Baptist together in the womb while he knits himself together in the womb because he is the creator in the uterus, which means that the prenatal, John, which means that the prenatal Jesus is knitting himself together in the womb while he knits himself together in the womb of a woman whose uterus he once knit together when he knit together Mary in the womb of Mary's mother. Welcome to Christianity, by the way. That's also called the incarnation. So if you need some wonder brought back into your faith church and you're kind of bored, you know, you're like, just wake up every morning and dwell on the incarnation. Well, we'll cut that segment I just did in a little Instagram reel and you can watch it each morning and be like, whoa, like drunk on the Holy Spirit, right? That's a fascinating truth. Jesus chooses to identify with you from your most vulnerable stage, the prenatal stage, enters human history in a uterus he once knit together to redeem mankind from their sins. That is the gospel. That is why he came. And that's how he chooses to enter human history. What a fascinating truth. But we're in this position because we as the church in America have had the spirit of Lot instead of the spirit of Gideon. And I actually believe that these are the two options before us, brothers and sisters. Who, who feels like it's a late hour in this fight? Like it's kind of the final fight for freedom. Like, oh my gosh. But like, who's freaked out about the country you're handing to your children and grandchildren? Like we all sense it. And so we have two options for us in the Bible. Of course, Jack could do a way better job giving you theology sort of backflips and application in the cultural realm, but I'll do my best. I see two options for the church, Lot or Gideon. Who's Lot? Well, Bible says he was a righteous man. And where is Lot in Genesis when the uh, angels come to torch San Francisco? I guess Sodom and, Gomor so <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. Where is Lot? He's at the city gates, remember church? So Lot is the Christian influencer of his day. He's got position, influence, cultural respectability. He's got political sway with the political leaders. He's in a position of influence, right? He's got probably pretty good Instagram following, you know, good ad spend. He makes a lot of money on his, on his platform, right? Um, but when the angels come to torch Sodom, he takes them to his house. And then it says, men from all parts of the city, so from every part of culture, comes descending onto that one righteous man's house. Does it feel like every part of culture is descending onto the remnant and onto the church that's willing to stand for what God cares about? Approve of us, celebrate us, participate in our wickedness, you stupid Republican domestic terrorist rubes. <laughs> By the way, Corrine Jean-Pierre asked me to communicate to you this morning that you all are a bunch of domestic terrorists and actually the greatest threat to freedom and democracy. Um, now that's actually not coming from me. Corrine Jean-Pierre just said that, who replaced Circle Saki as the White House press, press secretary um, a few months ago. 
um, at, right before Joe Biden's USSR red communist backdrop looking colors when he smeared all of us as domestic terrorists. I, listen, I know it, we laugh at this stuff and you should kind of mock the spirit of the age, right? You should be like Elijah at the prophets of Baal when, when God rains down fire from heaven and then Elijah walks up to the prophets of Baal and he goes like, so what's going on? And then he literally tells the prophets of Baal, where is your God? Is he on the toilet? <laughs> no, seriously, if you're mad at me and you're like, get off the pulpit, you're speaking crass language. That's what Elijah says to the prophets of Baal. He says, is he relieving himself? Like, I, where, where is it? I think we need more of that kind of confidence in the public square today to say, where is your God? And here is our God. <laughs> Hashtag Christian nationalism. I guess that's what that is or whatever. But notice how they'll smear and label you these names because they understand that the greatest threat to their political agenda, which is built on the mutilated bodies of 65 million aborted children, is Christians embracing pure and undefiled religion and being more zealous about their religion in the public square than the religion of secular humanism has been in the public square for their faith. So you need to understand when they label you the greatest and most extreme threat to freedom and democracy, they don't mean democracy, they mean their oligarchy. They just mean leftism. So in one way, they're right. Christians awakened to their civil political stewardship duty are the greatest threat, not to freedom and democracy, but to your demonic oligarchy that focuses on slaughtering children as your first political priority. So anyways, so they come to Lot's house, right? And they say, hey, Lot, bring those angels out. Bring those men out that we might have sex with them. Well, they were angels, right? And Lot, well, goes, and listen, Lot believed the truth. Bible says Lot was a righteous man. He was sometimes willing to speak the truth. Boy, do we have a lot of Christian pastors and leaders today who are willing to say true things. They're willing to critique the spirit of the age and the culture war just to the extent they can get away with without losing their platform and the ties of the registered Democrats that attend their church. They'll preach just as much truth as the spirit of the age allows them. That was Lot. He believed the truth. He spoke the truth. He walks out on his front porch, right? With the people saying, hey, we want to have sex with angels. And he says, brothers and sisters. So he tries to relate to people trying to sleep with angels. Like, I'm a brother and sister. Like, it's like, Lot, they're not your brothers and sisters. Stop trying to get crumbs from the table of secular progressivism so that you can maintain your 501c3 status. <laughs> but Lot was willing to speak the truth. He says, do not do this wicked or abominable thing. Remember? He calls their actions wicked and abominable. And then he says, here are my daughters. Have sex with them instead. You see, Lot was saved, but he wasn't salty. So his wife became in death what he should have been in life, a pillar of salt. Brothers and sisters, you can be saved, but not salty. You can make it into the kingdom by the hair on your bum. And like Lot, you can say, by grace and grace alone. But what's gonna be your story at the marriage supper of the lamb? When Jack Hibbs and Ron McCoy, Charlie Kirk, my friend A.J. Hurley here and his wife Lori, who are being targeted by the FBI because of their commitment to stand for the unborn child and expose the infanticide happening in Washington, D.C. with Muriel Bowser covering up partial birth abortions of children whose heads were collapsed by a suction catheter tube and refusing to investigate them. What's going to be your story at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Are you going to be like Lot and say, God barely let me in? Or are you going to say, look what God did because I stood? Lot didn't stand, he folded like a cheap suit when he was needed to protect his own daughters. 
We have been like Lot in the American church and we have given over our posterity to the sexualized Alfred Kinsey, Margaret Sanger spirit, spirit demonic mob in order to remain relevant and not be reviled and keep our position of influence. Or you have the option of Gideon. In Judges 6, Gideon's hiding out in a cave. Why is he hiding out in a cave, Seth? Because they had Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism. No joke. Remember the Midianites were oppressing the Israelites and taking everything they make? So the Israelites thresh their wheat and the Midianites come and take it, but don't worry, it was democratic socialism, so it was much better than normal socialism. At least, that's what I've been told. But. And so Gideon's hiding out a cave threshing his own wheat, so it's tax evasion, right? Naughty, naughty Gideon. And so God comes to Gideon in a cave in Judges 6, and he says, mighty man of valor, reminds him of his identity. Now, what's Gideon thinking? Where have you been? Our grandpapas told us you were the God that brought us up out of Egypt, that you would deliver us from the hand of the oppressor. Where's the milk and honey, yo? Where's the promised land? This sucks. Everything we make gets stealed by the Midianites. I thought this was a theocracy, God. I thought you were gonna save your people, right? Now Gideon's thinking, finally, God's gonna download a strategy of military engagement. Let's make some Midianites' heads roll, baby. Let's take back land for God, right? Is that where God starts? Go read Judges 6 this evening when you get home. It's fascinating, fascinating. Here's your homework. Go read Judges 6 tonight. God says, and that same night, meaning they had just finished talking, God and Gideon, and that same night, God said, you walk out of this cave and you go tear down that altar to Baal and you take that Asherah pole and you chop that up too. Who was Baal? The pagan god of child sacrifice, baby sacrifice. Who was Asherah? The goddess of sex. And they would worship Asherah through unbridled sexual escapades and orgies, which results nine months later in an unwanted baby, which you then pass through the fire to Baal. What if I told you there's nothing new under the sun and Planned Parenthood's strategy of cultural engagement is the same as it was in Judges 6 today? They push pornographic, sexually titillating material that Alfred Kinsey and the medical director for Planned Parenthood in 1964 started through the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States with seed money provided to them by Hugh Hefner with a board member who had been the executive director of the Kinsey Institute and part of the pro-incest lobby. And they pushed that pornographic, sexually titillating material through public schools, which brought all the mama bears and papa books Papa Bear's the school board meetings in the last two years. They've been doing that since the 60s to break down sexual and societal mores so people can't govern themselves so that they'll be a sucker for the first would-be tyrant and his utopian promises that rises amongst you so you'll be debased to your most animalistic appetites, have more sex, have more unwanted babies, which you then can pass through the fires to Planned Parenthood today. What if it was the same strategy the entire time? but we were waiting downstream to pick up human heartache that we helped create because we wanted to make Christianity attractive. We wanted the political elites to respect us. We were like Lot, and we would only speak as much truth as the spirit of the age allowed us to. But if God was calling us to more and we had to sacrifice for what God cares about, we would rather give over our own posterity to remain relevant and not be reviled. God is calling the church of Jesus Christ to be like Gideon and walk out of that cave and be about your father's high kingdom business. You wanna know God's priorities? He dealt with the Israelites' abortions before anything else. Stop 
passing my children through the fire. I told you to stop this. I told you I'm bringing the savior of the world through your lineage. Stop killing my babies, or I'm gonna give you over to be ruled by those who hate you. Psalm 106. Psalm 106, at the very end, God says, I give you over to be ruled by those who hate you because you're sacrificing your sons and daughters to demons. I believe that the horrors of the 20th and now 21st century are the result of the spirit of Lot instead of the spirit of Gideon in the church today. It really is that simple. So how did we get here? We're labeled domestic terrorists for being pro-life. Pro-lifers are being arrested by the FBI for sidewalk counseling, trying to save children and be like Gideon. Parents are labeled domestic terrorists by Attorney General Merrick Garland if they spoke at a school board meeting like I did. The IRS doubles its size to go after not political elites and Democrats, but conservatives. Pro-life OBGYNs threaten with career termination if they personally don't want to perform an abortion. How did we get here? G.K. Chesterton once said, happy is he who knows not only the hidden causes of things, but who has not lost touch with their beginnings. In other words, happy is he who knows how we got here, who understands the ideas and the high pontiffs of progressivism that were more dogmatic in their public religion than the Christians were with theirs. Happy is he who understands that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. You can't defeat an enemy that you don't understand. And I believe that most of the church today does not understand the causes of the societal and moral rot happening in America, nor the people that the enemy of our souls used to advance his ideology in the culture. So if we're gonna understand how everything is happening in America right now, for goodness sake, we need to understand the spirit of Margaret Sanger, the patron saint of feminism, whose body count is greater than Hitler, Mussolini, and Mao combined. Yet their names are appropriately reviled, and her name is praised in the halls of Congress. And Hillary Clinton gets awards named after Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a communist revolutionary who got radicalized in the early 1900s. You need to understand she was not just a birth control gal. She was not just an abortion gal. She cared about all of the priorities of progressivism. Does that make sense? Well, we should call secular progressivism secular regressivism, amen? Because their ideas are not progressive, they're regressive. Child killing to ancient pagan deities goes back to the first generations immediately following Adam and Eve. <laughs> Their ideas are very old, ancient, and kooky, and have always destroyed civilizations. As Bill Federer so eloquently says, there's a 100% correlation between sexual addiction and obsession in cultures and cultural decay, and there's a 100% correlation between sexual monogamous healthy relationships and cultural advancement. Margaret Sanger understood that as well. Moral anarchy is always the prelude to statist tyranny. This vaunted freedom from law ends always in a freedom from liberty. Sanger understood that. That you had to sexualize the masses and break down those healthy standards. What do we say liberty is the wise restraints that make men free? You've got to break down those standards and norms to usher in the Marxist takeover. So you need to understand, Margaret Sanger was a Marxist. She was a communist. <laughs> but she said, oh, maybe, maybe sex and birth control, maybe that's the key that will unlock the revolution. 
Maybe that will usher in the cultural revolution by which we can upend all of society. Sanger was wise and wicked as a serpent. So she begins to write her ideas and distribute them across New York and starts pitching and peddling the narrative of birth control, to get people on birth control to have less kids. But she had this kooky obsession with certain people groups. It was never white people. Unless they were a criminal or an alcoholic, then she wanted to snip them and make sure they didn't have kids. But she really had it out for black people, Jews, Slavs, and Italians. This is where Sanger begins. Here's her first paper. It was called Woman Rebel. Her first paper is called Woman Rebel. Now, we're about to show you a slide of Margaret Sanger. Okay, you're gonna understand why she looks the way she looks. Here's her first uh, paper. She said, rebel women claim the following rights. <laughs> the right to be lazy, the right to be an unmarried mother, the right to destroy, and the right to love. The tagline of her woman rebel first publication was no gods and no masters. Oh, right. Yeah, the fulfillment of the first lie. <laughs> the serpent. By the way, you know Eve eating the apple is the first wokeification story. Eve got woke. Eat the apple. God's holding out on you. See, he's holding out on you because if you eat the apple, your eyes will be open. So they're not open right now because God doesn't really want you to have access to all of truth. So eat the apple, then you'll get woke. You'll see reality for what it really is. And what was the last words of the serpent? And then ye shall be as gods. And she titles the tagline of her first paper, no gods and no masters. Could she be any clearer, church? This is where Margaret Sanger gets her beginning, okay? So her publications on contraception and you know, sexually titillating material gets her indicted on three counts for breaking the Comstock laws. Now the Comstock laws in New York City in the early 1900s, actually very healthy laws, I, I wish we enforced them today. It allowed the Postal Service to go through the mail and remove pornographic, sexually titillating, inappropriate material. Because they understood that you have to have a healthy society, healthy family if you're gonna have a healthy culture. And so rather than getting arrested, guess what Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood does? She gets her socialist friends in the New York labor movement to forge her a passport. She, she ships her kids off to be raised by someone else and she flees to England rather than being arrested. This is how the founder of Planned Parenthood gets her beginning. Happy is he who knows not only the hidden causes of things, but who has not lost touch with their beginnings. This is the genesis of the patron saint of feminism. So she meets the Neo-Malthusians in, in uh, England. Okay, well, that's a big word. What's that? Neo-Malthusians. Malthusian Thomas Malthus. Malthus, Malthusianism. Thomas Malthus was none other than the Anthony Fauci of the early 1800s. He was just following the science. <laughs> and as Anthony Fauci would say, right, he, I am the science. And if you disagree with me, you're a heretic of the religion of secular progressivism and you'll be thrown out into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? <laughs> Domestic terrorists, censor you, remove your account offline. We can't let you saying those things, right? So Thomas Malthus believed that uh, food production can't keep up with population growth. Follow me? In other words, we have too many people. Anyone noticed how the liberal establishment is sort of obsessed with overpopulation for, I don't know, hundreds of years? It really begins in a serious way with Thomas Malthus. So what's the solution? If we have too many people, well, what do we do? Well, we prevent certain classes from reproducing or we just kill the babies. Now, it's funny, you'll notice Bernie Sanders and George Soros and Mark Zuckerberg and the entire liberal establishment, they never offer to suicide themselves. If we have so many people and we're all gonna die, prove the courage of your convictions and Hillary Clinton yourself. Oh! <laughs> sorry, Freudian slip, sorry. It's when you say one thing and mean your mother. I apologize for that. 
they never volunteer themselves. It's always the babies and the darker of skin. It's a fascinating aspect of secular regressivism. So here's Thomas Malthus, because why? Margaret Sanger meets the Neo-Malthusians. Thomas Malthus's disciples, okay? So if you wanna understand how we got here, I'm giving it to you right now. Here's Malthus. All children born beyond what would be required to keep up the population to a desired growth must necessarily perish unless room be made for them by the deaths of grown persons. But the, de the, the grown people never offer themselves, right? Yeah. Therefore, we should facilitate, instead of foolishly and vainly endeavoring to impede the operations of nature in producing this mortality. And if we dread the too frequent visitation of the horrid form of famine, we should sedulously encourage the other forms of destruction, which we compel nature to use. Instead of recommending cleanliness to the poor, we should encourage contrary habits. <laughs> In our towns, we should make the streets more narrow and crowd more people into the houses. To, to, well, to court the return of the plague, of course. And then in the country, we should build our villages near stagnant pools and particularly encourage settlements in all marshy and unwholesome situations. But above all, we should reprobate specific remedies for ravaging diseases and restrain those benevolent but much mistaken men who have thought that they were doing a service to mankind by projecting schemes for the total extirpation of particular disorders. Can I summarize that for you really quick? Some people are good and some people are bad. We need more of the good people and less of the bad people. Bad people are usually the mentally and physically defectives and the alcoholics and the criminal class and Jews, blacks, Italians and Slavs, but we white, rich white people, we're really good. We have a good racial stock. And so because we have so many people and there's not enough food for all the people, we are the high priests and kings of secular progressivism and we get to decide who lives and who dies, who should be snipped and sterilized and not allowed to have kids. And then those people that are really ravaging our social communities with ideas we don't like, we'll just make sure they die off. So this is where the overpopulation theorists begin. It begins with Thomas Malthus, okay? So she meets the Neo-Malthusians. So what's the next step from Neo-Malthusianism? Eugenics. Eugenics, the creed that says some people are good and some people are bad. There are good genes and bad genes. Did you know eugenics means good in birth? Well, we as Christians would say everyone is good in birth. They're an image bearer of God with intrinsic dignity. No, 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 the Neo-Malthusians say some people have good genes that we want more of in the social community and some people have bad genes that we shouldn't let them have kids. Welcome to Margaret Sanger's influences and her genesis, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Then she meets Havelock Ellis. Everyone, anyone heard of Alfred Kinsey? Okay, well, Havelock Ellis was England's Alfred Kinsey. He was a sexually obsessed, impotent, pornographic demon who wrote over 50 books on every lewd form of sexual experimentation. Havelock Ellis was himself impotent, so he was always trying to find new ways to get excited. That's the PG-13 version, okay? If, if you want to know the culture of death, I have to speak clearly, I'm sorry. Well, guess who begins a raging affair with Havelock Ellis? Margaret Sanger. Sanger sleeps her way up the levers of power in England. She slept with H.G. Wells, uh, Havelock Ellis. She just sleeps her way up the communist level, uh, levers of power in England. Okay, so Havelock Ellis begins to mentor Sanger, and they write letters to each other for decades after she comes back to New York. It was one of her biggest political influences. Well, let's say religious influences, amen? Man is fundamentally a religious being, and boy, is secular progressivism a weird religion, amen? <laughs> so Havelock Ellis says, hey, Sanger, I want what you want too, but you're too radical. The people aren't ready. So you need to tone down those radical themes of anarchism and communism, and you need to focus on the more scientific-sounding themes of eugenics and Malthusianism. Because, guys, 100 years ago, these ideas were actually very welcome in the halls of power, as they are today. Following the science 100 years ago meant being a eugenicist. 
right? So Havelock Ellis is a demon. Okay, you get that. Who was his mentor? Francis Galton. Okay. Francis Galton invented a word. Eugenics. <laughs> okay. Francis Galton had a half-cousin. Charles Darwin. Wow. Right. Right? Survival of the fittest. We're no more valuable than animals. You are no more valuable than a cow, a dog, or a cat, believed the Darwinists. Therefore, might makes right. The strong survive and the weak die, even if the strong have to kill the weak. Welcome to the animal kingdom. That's Darwinism. Charles Darwin's half-cousin is Francis Galton, who coins the term eugenics and is the father of the modern eugenics movement, who's the mentor of Havelock Ellis, who's the number one political influence on Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Wow. Seth, are you telling me that the culture war, it was just kind of like a proxy war for a deeper spiritual war? Secular humanism is the most deadly religion in human history. And its body count is greater in the 20th century than in all of human history before that combined. Oh, but you're not political Christian? Cool. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, politics means taking on responsibility. This cannot happen without power. Power is to serve responsibility. But we wanted Christianity to be attractive. We stood on the sidelines and watched the human heartache that resulted from these demonic ideas. And we said, I just preached the gospel to which the spirit of the age and the enemy of our souls has a field day. And he says, <laughs> thank you. Thank you that you capitulate and flinch like Lot at the one moment that you could have opposed and ended my agenda. As Martin Luther once said, if I preach with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that one point at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldiers are proven and to be steady on every other battlefield is mere flight and disgrace if you flinch at that one moment. We have been flinching at that one moment at which the enemy of our souls was most vociferously and passionately attacking the womb, the location in which your savior enters human history in to redeem mankind from their sins, but you're not political, cool. Well, Sanger returns to New York after meeting Havelock Ellis and the Neo-Malthusians, and she opens up her first illegal birth control clinic. It was illegal at the time. Want to know who coined the term birth control? Margaret Sanger. Oh, interesting. The woman who wanted to use birth control to get rid of bad racial stock that she didn't like? Yeah, that's the woman who came up with the word birth control. And she always saw it as one in the same with the goal of eugenics. You need to understand this birth control was not detached from the greater eugenic vision of these pontiffs of progressivism. As Sanger would put it, eugenics without birth control seems to us a house built upon the sands. It is at the mercy of the rising streams of the unfit. The term unfit might be the most important word in this religion. They believe that they get to define who's fit to live and who's unfit to live. So you'll notice this word will continue to come up, unfit and fit. So Margaret Sanger opens 
and launches her American Birth Control League in 1921 to gain support from social workers, medical professionals, and, and the public for birth control. The American Birth Control League, before it was renamed Planned Parenthood, was originally housed in the same offices as the American Eugenics Society. And Margaret Sanger tried to merge her organization with major American eugenics organizations on two different occasions. So just so you understand, they were all on the same team, okay? <laughs> Planned Parenthood was not detached from the larger Marxist communist revolutionary takeover of America. She was one of the architects of that movement because she saw what none of the other Marxist revolutionaries saw at the time, that the riots in the street and the economic infil infiltration weren't working to usher in the Marxist revolution. But if, if we could use the key of sex, maybe that's the key, the missing piece that will usher in the revolution. She was one of the architects of the entire culture war that has brought us to the moment we're at today. You need to understand this. Okay. She publishes her first book, The Pivot of Civilization, in 1922. The pivot of civilization. You can go Reuters, Washington Post, five, five Pinocchios, fact check me on all this, okay? Sanger writes the following in her first book. She longed for when the choking human undergrowth of morons and imbeciles would be segregated and sterilized. And this was her, this was her aspiration, as she wrote it in her book. She wanted to create a race of thoroughbreds by encouraging more children from the fit and less from the, remember those terms? Those are the key terms in the lexicon of leftism. And by the way, you're close to being the next iteration of the ideology of eugenics that defines some people as unfit, unwanted, and undesirable. Yeah, you understand where I'm going with this? As she put it in a speech at the 1921 Eugenics International Congress Conference, the most urgent problem today, wow, the most urgent, okay, what is this? How to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. So Sanger's the kind of person who would look at our wonderful brother, Nick Vujicic, and say, ugh, we shouldn't let him have kids. Maybe we should euthanize him. These people are demons. Do you understand? Do you understand the proxy war attack this was against the image of God and our king? Sanger actually once said, and we don't have a slide for this, but Sanger once said, birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to displace the authority of the Christian churches. The founder of Planned Parenthood just told you that the whole goal was to displace Christianity as the dominant worldview and religion in the public square to usher in the religion of humanism, which as Francis Schaeffer once said, humanism is the placing of man at the center of all things and making him the measure of all things. In other words, ye shall be as gods. Then she... Uh, <laughs> She went after 501c3s and charities because if you have to get rid of the criminal classes and the poor and the mentally and physically defective, well, then those Christian ministries and nonprofits that love those people, we need to get rid of those. Ready? The government of the United States deliberately encourages and even makes necessary by its laws the breeding with a breakneck rapidity of idiots, defectives, diseased, feeble-minded, and criminal classes. Billions of dollars are expensed by our state and federal governments and by those private charities and philanthropies for the care, the maintenance, and the perpetuation of these classes. Year by year, more money is expensed to maintain an increasing race of morons, which threatens the very foundations of our civilization. 
Now do you see why we made her look like a demon? By the way, I'm going to do a university speaking tour in the spring, and we're going to call it, I'll share this with you now, guys. We're going to call it Adolf who? Margaret Sanger's body count. And we're going to blow up that demon Sanger face on college campuses and advertise the tour all around the country. So we'll have some fun with that. So Margaret Sanger continues at her little conferences. So she did birth control conferences, right? In New York, where she invited worldwide leaders to share their eugenics demon ideas. She's like, come share your ideas about getting rid of Jews and blacks and Slavs, right? So here's what she put it at the 1925 Sanger birth control conference. You know what the problem is, right? It's the dullard, the gawk, the numbskull, the simpleton, the weakling, and the scatterbrain are amongst us in overshadowing numbers, intermarrying, breeding, inordinately prolific, literally threatening to overwhelm the world with their useless and terrifying get. And then later, Sanger would go after organized charities again. She would say that organized charity is the symptom of a malignant social disease. Do you understand? Because if eugenics is gonna take over the country and decide what pure racial stocks get to live and what bad human stocks don't get to live, then you have to get rid of the charities that actually love the very people that you're trying to eliminate. Anyways, so she went after that. Okay, ready for the racism? Do we have barf bags? Does anyone need a moment to lose your breakfast? Did everyone get it? Okay. Uh, in 1939, Margaret Sanger launches something called the Negro Project. Oh, why would she call it that? I've been told by the New York Times and the LA Times that she wasn't a racist. She was just a woman of her times who wanted to help the black community by making sure that they didn't have too many kids or they, that they could be good parents to the kids they already had. She wasn't a racist. Then why do you call it the Negro Project, you demonic demon, right? So here you go, you ready? What's the problem? What's the proposal? You go, you're fetching me all this, right? We got the, by the way, we have my notes online for anyone who's like, oh, I'm drinking from a fire hose. We have these online on the website, okay? <laughs> Here, go get them. Okay, here's the proposal, ready? Here's Sanger. The mass of Negroes, particularly in the South, still breed carelessly and disastrously with the result that the increase among Negroes, even more than among whites, is from that portion of the population Least intelligent and, there's that word again, fit. They're unfit to live, see, but I'm fit to live. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a white political elite Margaret Sanger rich person. So if that was the problem, what was the goal? Here was the stated goal of the Negro Project. The gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks. Those human weeds which threatened the blossoming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Finest flowers is rich white people and people that Margaret Sanger believed had good genes. Human weeds and defective stocks were largely Hispanics, blacks, Italians, Jews, and Slavs. So birth control became the tool in the eugenics vision. So then she, well, you know what she had to do, right? The assault against black people was kind of a little bit too obvious. <laughs> so she needed to put black leaders at the front of the agenda so that the black people they were targeting wouldn't be as suspicious of the larger goals because it would be being run by people who look like them. Warnock. Oh, that sounds like today. Amen, sister. Raphael Warnock, Lecrae, Jackie Hill Perry, T.D. Jakes, and any other black would-be Christian leader or pastor who gives their congregation and followers spiritual license to vote for the very people lynching their black neighbors in the womb. Abortion is racism because if abortion doesn't end soon, you're gonna go to have to, you have to go to the Smithsonian to see a black person in 30 years. Accomplishing Margaret Sanger's goals. So here's how she explained her, her goal, right? To get black leaders involved. 
right? Here, here you go. Here was a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble, the most damning takedown we have exposing her strategy. We propose to hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal because we do not want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the black minister is the one who can straighten out that idea if it occurs to any more of his rebellious members. The goal has not changed today. Planned Parenthood put 79% of their surgical abortion facilities within walking distance of majority black neighborhoods and will only hire black people at the front desk so the black babies who dwell in the wombs of their black mothers that they're targeting for a pretty exchange of cash won't be suspicious of the larger agenda because someone who looks like them is leading the agenda against their own people. There is nothing new under the sun. And then Sanger had to hire Negro project directors, right? This sounds like a really big goal. Kind of hard to pull off. So we got to hire regional coordinators to propagandize birth control in black enclaves. So they raised up Negro Project field directors. And thankfully, they wrote down their demonic ideas for us. Here you go. Here was one Negro Project director. There is a great danger that we will fail because the Negroes think that this is a plan for their extermination. So let's appear to let the colored run it. One of Margaret Sanger's Negro Project directors wrote that. In other words, uh, it's kind of a little too obvious what we're trying to do. And the black people, they kind of realize it. So let's give them the appearance of running it. Back to Raphael Warnock, the pro-abortion pastor, senator in Georgia who's running against Herschel Walker. And a special election runoff once again, just like happened in 2020. Here's another Negro Project director. I wonder if Southern darkies can ever be entrusted with a clinic. Now, who calls uh, black people Southern darkies, by the way? Racist. Um, our experience causes us to doubt their ability to work. Well, of course, except under white supervision. <sighs> Could the agenda be more clear? The goal was always to displace Christianity and usher in the same pagan religion that brought us child sacrifice with the Canaanites to upend society so that they can recreate it in their own botched images. It was an alternative creation story. It was an alternative gospel, which is why abortion is the sacrament of secular progressivism. Why? Because abortion says you must die so I can live. But Christ says, no, I must die so you can live. Amen. I die and I'm raised from death so you can too. And what were our Savior's first words of ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom begins in a uterus. So is it any surprise that the womb has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves? Peter Kraft, the Catholic philosopher, put it better than any Protestant I've ever heard put it. He said, abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. The demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same 
holy, holy words. This is my body. But with the opposite blasphemous meaning. What are Jesus' words at the Last Supper and the First Communion in the upper room? This is my body. And I'm going to break it for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. What if I told you that it's not ironic that the culture of death and the liberal establishment and the abortion industrial complex has the same stinking phrase as the centerpiece of their entire religion? This is my body, my choice, and I'll kill whatever's inside of my body because the serpent told me in Genesis 3, I'm going to be like a God. And a God gets to decide who lives and who dies. A God also gets to live forever. Which is why abortion is the pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life. Abortion is the pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life. Rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, the culture of death demands that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. But it's still demon worship. Because Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you sacrifice your children to. Was Moloch really a little bronze dude without stretched hands? Or was it Satan masquerading as a statue? Who's the dragon in Revelation waiting for Mary to give birth to eat the Christ child? Satan. Who's behind the killing of babies by Herod in Bethlehem and by Pharaoh in Egypt? Satan. And abortion is Satan's pride and joy. You see, Satan would kill God if he could, but he can't, so he kills babies because he knows it wounds the heart of the Father and causes chaos in the land. Jeremiah 7. The land is a wasteland. It's been desecrated with blood, and so I give you over to be ruled by those who hate you. We kill babies through embryonic stem cell research, fetal organ harvesting, and prenatal gene editing. And do you know what the common thread and justification of all of those three heinous Joseph Mengele-like experiments is? But maybe we can live a little bit longer. Use the baby's stem cells and organs. Oh, your organs are dying, don't worry, we'll just take it from the little babies. Oh, you have a disease or disorder, don't worry, we'll just kill the babies and rip them of their stem cells and try to use it to cure diseases. Oh, 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 you have, oh, you, you have a certain susceptibilities to diseases because of your lineage and your parents? Well, but, well we, we can do gene editing on the baby and kill them, and then, and then when we perfect that gene editing, we'll apply it on adults and edit out of our gene code certain susceptibilities to diseases and disorders so we can live just a little bit longer. Abortion is the pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life. So when Christians and pastors say, I don't preach on abortion because I'm not political, you should say, no, you don't preach against false religion that masquerades as politics to keep the politically impotent pastors silent. This was always the goal. The Negro Project, the entire operation was a ruse. It was a manipulative attempt to get blacks to cooperate in their own elimination. And that project was largely, largely successful, which is why the black community, more so than any other racial group in America, is the lowest in their replacement reproduction rates. Margaret Sanger had friends. We don't have time to get into all of it. She had a friend named Lothrop Stoddard, who was a high official of the Massachusetts Ku Klux Klan. He was a board member for Planned Parenthood. He wrote a book called The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. He wrote a book called The Rise of the Underman. And the German term for underman is Untermensch. And the Nazi party's chief racial theorist, Alfred Rosenberg, 
appropriated the German term Untermensch from the English version of Lothrop Stoddard's book, Margaret Sanger's board member. In other words, guys, the Nazis got the term Untermensch from the English version of Margaret Sanger's best friend's writings. Untermensch, the phrase that means subhuman and was used to refer to the Jews and the title of Heinrich Himmler's famous Nazi propaganda book, Untermensch. Then she had a friend named Leon Whitney. Leon Whitney was part of the American Eugenic Society and he wrote vociferously in Margaret Sanger's birth control review where she published the ideas of all of her best eugenics demon friends from all around the world. And Leon Whitney would defend the sterilization laws in Germany. Okay. Then there was Madison Grant. Madison Grant, who was part of the American Eugenics Society, which, remember, was housed in the same offices as the American Birth Control League. Madison Grant once put a black man in a cage with a monkey at the New York City Bronx Zoo to, quote, illustrate evolution. That black man, Oda Benga, took his life 10 years later. Here's Madison Grant for you. Mistaken regard for what are believed to be divine laws and a sentimental belief in the sanctity of human life tend to prevent both the elimination of defective infants and the sterilization of such adults who are of themselves of no value to the community. The laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit and human life is only valuable when it is of use to the community or race. To which I want to say, hey, you eugenicist, Alfred Kinsey, Margaret Sanger, demons, I'm going to define you as of no value to the community or race and define you as unwanted and undesirable and unfit. But notice, it was never about that. It was always a proxy war. Whoever can get their hands on the reins of political power can upend society and put themselves as the kings of the theocracy of secular progressivism. There's only one theocracy in America today, and it's the state religion of progressivism that castigates its political dissidents and heretics and throws them out into their utter darkness, where there will also be weeping and gnashing of teeth, whether it's the FBI arresting pro-lifers or parents being labeled domestic terrorists as Attorney General Merrick Garland. So these were her friends, huh? Wow, what demons. So then Madison Grant, the guy who put the black man in the cage with the monkey, Madison Grant gets a letter one day from a German corporal recently out of prison and rising in the German political scene. And he calls Madison Grant's book, the book we just cited, he calls Madison Grant's book his Bible. So Madison Grant runs over to his friend Leon Whitney, who wrote in Sanger's Birth Control Review and, and defended the sterilization laws in Germany. And he says, hey, Leon, our writings are influencing the Germans. Yay. Leon Whitney or, smiles and chuckles. And he pulls out his own letter he had just received from the same German corporal, recently out of prison and rising in the German political scene. The man who wrote those letters was named Adolf Hitler. Hmm. So do you understand they were all on the same team now? Do you understand? Margaret Sanger was not detached from the greater communist, revolutionary, secular, progressive, takeover, and eugenics. It was all the same ideas. If you get to define who's fit to live and who's unfit to live, then what's the next iteration of eugenics? Who next will be defined as unwanted, undesirable? Or to quote the Nazis, Lebens und Wertensleben. Want to know what that meant? Life unworthy of life. Oh, Seth, unworthy. That sounds like unwanted. Unwanted pregnancies, unwanted babies. We are already living through the next iteration of you being defined as deplorables and irredeemables, <laughs> to quote Hillary Clinton. 
So anyone who would be like Gideon and walk out of that cave and tear down the high places of Baal. Because right after Gideon does that, do you know what the Israelites and, and Midianites did? They said, someone tore down our altars. And they said, who did this? Go read about it. Remember when you do your homework later, Judges 6, okay? And they go, hey, Joash. Joash was Gideon's dad. They go, hey, Joash, your son Gideon did this. Bring him out so we can kill him. Oh, Seth, are you telling me that it's the same thing? That those who would stand against the spirit of Moloch and Margaret Sanger and child sacrifice and publicly mock the spirit of Baal like Elijah will, will have the secular progressive demonic moral revolutionaries call for their head because they dare stand in the way of the culture of death? Uh-huh. And that's why we're living through the next iteration of being defined as domestic terrorists, the greatest and most extreme threat to freedom and democracy, deplorables and irredeemables, whatever new euphemism that the White House press secretary and the Democrat Party come up with to castigate you and make your mistreatment socially acceptable in the public square. That's what we're living through. The only person to see all of this from an unprecedented political and prescient playing field was a man named G.K. Chesterton. To this day, G.K. Chesterton is credited for seeing all of this in 1920, a year before Sanger even launches the American Birth Control League. Chesterton knew that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And he saw it all. He was so prescient and prophetic. But where were the churches? Why was he the only public voice decrying the demonic aims of eugenics and the assault against the Imago Dei? Chesterton, I call him the first lib-triggering troll, by the way. <laughs> he was brilliant. He knew how to take ideas and invert them and publicly mock the spirit of these degenerates. He once said that if Darwinism was the doctrine of the survival of the fittest, then eugenics was the doctrine of the survival of the nastiest. Because can you think of a more nasty human being than someone who looks at a black person or Nick Vujicic or a Down syndrome child and goes, ew, I don't want them to reproduce. Our world would be better if they didn't exist. What a nasty demon. And Chesterton saw this in the 19-teens and 1920s. A full hundred years ago, church. Chesterton referred to the eugenicists of his day the way we as Christians should refer to the eugenesis of our day. He said, they combine a hardening of the heart with a sympathetic softening of the head. Because <laughs> secular progressivism really does rot the brain, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does. It makes you stupider. But they were more committed to their ideology than Christians. It, guys, it doesn't matter if the ideas are stupid and ridicule worthy, if the people advocating them are more passionate and zealous to implement them than Christians were to defend Christianity. You can mock it, you can laugh at it as kooky. Oh, these people believe men can be women. It doesn't matter if you're the next iteration in the ideology of eugenics. Chesterton would say in 1920, 1920 he would tell you where it was going. He said, we are not so very far off from even the sacrifice of babies. If not to a crocodile, at least to a creed. He wrote that in an opinion editorial in England in 1920, one year before Sanger launched the American Birth Control League. He saw it all. He knew that those ideas would end in child sacrifice. 
What if the church had heeded the warnings of G.K. Chesterton, huh? What if we had cared more about righteousness and the plight of our neighbors than our own reputation? What if God's people had awakened and realized that the culture war was just a proxy war for the spiritual war? But we buried that evil. We convinced ourselves that Christianity has nothing to do with politics. We were like Lot and we wanted a place at the table. We wanted Christianity to be really attractive to the political elite so we can be like Russell Moore and Tim Keller and have the New York Times publish our opinion editorials. Notice, by the way, how the New York Times will never publish an article by Rob McCoy or Jack Hibbs. It's always the religious tools that they use under the syncretism of a pagan faith syncretized with Christianity to, to, to castrate the only Christian witness that could stop the eugenic evil in the first place. We were like Lot, but in burying that evil, we implanted it. What do I mean by that? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who knows that name? The survivor of the Russian gulags and the prophetic voice of the 20th century once said, in keeping silent about evil and burying it so deep within us that no sign of it appears on the surface, we were actually implanting it. So it would rise up a thousand fold in the future. Did the ideology of eugenics arise up a thousand fold in the future? Thanks to the silence of Christians and the dogmatic commitment of follow the science demonic eugenicists, tens of millions of people were murdered and forcibly sterilized in the 20th century alone. To quote Bonhoeffer, we have been the silent witnesses of evil deeds. We need Christian resistance. What does that mean? Let's finish with a brief story. There was a young woman named Sophie Scholl in Munich, Germany in 1942. And you see Christians like Bonhoeffer and Oskar Schindler and the White Rose Resistance, they were facing the same worldview that Margaret Sanger was implementing at the same time, who defined some people as fit and some people as unfit. It was the Jews then, it's babies today, and it might be you next. She comes across a paper on the sidewalk in Munich, and she picks it up, and it says the White Rose Resistance. She starts reading it, and it's explicitly condemning the crimes of the Nazis and asking the good people to wake up. Pretty simple. They said things like, we are the White Rose Resistance, we are your bad conscience, and we will not leave you alone. So today, the White House would say, Christian nationalists, right, or whatever. Yeah, I'm a Christian, and I believe that Christianity is the best religion for the public square, whatever. She starts reading this, and Sophie says, this sounds a lot like my brother Hans. He talks like this a lot. <laughs> Come to find out, the White Rose Resistance had not only been co-founded, but was being run by none other than her older brother Hans, who at 24 years old was just trying to protect his little sister. You understand how dangerous Christian political resistance was in 1942 Germany, right? The Jews were wearing the yellow star for three years already. They've been being burned and showered in concentration camps for years. The ashes of the Jews are falling on the steeples of local churches who are more like Russell Moore, Ed Stetzer, Rick Warren than Jack Hibbs and Rob McCoy. So she wants to join the White Rose Resistance. 
And she becomes the youngest member and the only woman of the White Rose Resistance. For the rest of 1942, Hans and Sophie start to distribute anti-Nazi leaflets all around Germany. They stay up all night and they write and they print, and then they take trains in the middle of the night to major German cities and they drop off these leaflets. They called them leaflets of the resistance. It was a social media campaign pre-digital age. Expose the deeds of darkness, Ephesians 5.11. Do you see? Act, what are you gonna do? And then in 1943, they took things to the next level. 1943, guys, this is the late hour of World War II. And Hans and Sophie, brother and sister, take suitcases onto the campus at the University of Munich. And during class time, when the halls were quiet, they start dropping off hundreds of these piles of anti-Nazi leaflets all around the university. Now, the Nazis and the Gestapo hated the White Rose Resistance. They would, get, they would like graffiti their ideas, critiquing the Nazis on walls and bridges, and they'd campaign it the next day. They hated them, right? And then in this iconic, courageous, amazing scene that's been retold in movies, Sophie walks to the third floor balcony at the University of Munich, which you can visit today. And she throws an entire stack of leaflets three stories down to the atrium below. Now, what happens when you throw paper? It goes everywhere. The janitor, a committed Nazi, catches Sophie in the act and calls the Gestapo on the spot. Hans and Sophie are arrested that day on February 18th, 1943. Because they were arrested and there are their mugshots, they missed a meeting they had that afternoon in Munich with a man who wanted to meet with them. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who had been so incensed and encouraged by these young people's bravery, he had gone to Munich to meet with them. They never made that meeting. And four days later, they were taken to the guillotine Sophie understood what Reagan once said, that evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. But we have been unafraid. We were like Lot. We didn't want to lose our position of influence and comfortable Christianity and 501c3 tax write-offs that allow us to preach heresy from the pulpit and not preach the full counsel of God. Sophie is going to speak prophetically to you right now. Here's what she said in a G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis level prescience, she didn't blame the doers of evil. Here's what she said. The real damage is caused by all of those millions who just want to survive. The honest men and women who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their strength for fear of antagonizing their own weaknesses. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principle, it's just literature. Like Lot, who would speak true things. Those who live small, die small. It's the reductionistic approach to life. Because <laughs> if you keep it small, Christian, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. FBI, Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> but it's all an illusion. Because they die too. <laughs> Those people... <laughs> who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place. 
as wide avenues and a little candle burns itself out just like the flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. Um, who speaks like that at 21? <laughs> Sounds like William Wilberforce, G.K. Chesterton, Winston Churchill. What in the world? 21. A young woman with the lion of the tribe of Judah roaring inside of her, saying, love your neighbor. Expose the deeds of darkness. Stand in the middle of the road of the culture of death with a big sign that says, stop. You will go no further, or as Pastor Jack Hibbs said at Charlie Kirk's Turning Point USA Faith Pastor Summit in Coronado in August, if you as a pastor or a Christian can't contend against or preach against Prop 1 that seeks to put abortion through point of birth into the state constitution, you have surrendered your pulpit. Yes. Yes. Amen. You have walked away from your authority. Your mantle has fallen off. Your pastor said that in San Diego to 500 pastors in August. <laughs> Sophie's courage and calm so disturbed her own prison captors that they relaxed the rules and let Hans and Sophie meet with their parents right before being taken to the guillotine. And Sophie's mom would look Sophie in the eyes and say, remember Jesus, Sophie. And Sophie responded to her mother, yes, but you too, mama. Sophie's cellmate, Elsie Gebel, wrote letters later to Sophie's parents who survived the Holocaust and told Sophie's parents every final moment and hour of her daughter's life. And she told Sophie's parents, your daughter Sophie was not so concerned with her impending death. She was disturbed in soul as to how her mother could survive losing two children on the same day. The prison guards said that Sophie went without the flicker of an eyelash. None of us understood how that was possible. The executioner said he had never seen someone meet his end as Sophie did. Sophie's final words to her cellmate before being escorted to the guillotine was to look out her window and simply say, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing? to give themselves up individually to a righteous cause. Such a fine sunny day, and I have to go now. But what does my death matter? If through us, thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action, they never saw that awakening happen. Thousands were not awakened and stirred to action, and the good people in the church remained silent and flinched and capitulated at the one point they were needed the most. But while rose blossoms may perish in the fall, they reappear in the spring. And while all of the members of the White Rose Resistance were found and executed, their sacrifice planted the seeds of resistance in that cultural soil that the secular progressive elites were more committed to watering. And your sacrifice will water those seeds of resistance in the culture war. So one day, thousands will be awakened and stirred to action. The white rose will blossom again. And we can say, the sun still shines. And so on February 22nd, 1943, Hans and Sophie were taken to the guillotine. According to the executioner, Sophie's final words was the sun still shines. 
And Hans's final words were simply, freedom, freedom. I am rebuilding the white rose resistance for this generation against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion to build the army of resistance, Christian resistance, that Hans and Sophie dreamed of but never saw materialized, never saw realized to end the genocide of our time abortion because they're image bearers of God in the location that your savior entered human history in to redeem mankind from their sins but also because the longer you tolerate the spirit of Margaret Sanger, the spirit of Charles Darwin, the spirit of Lothrop Stoddard, the spirit of Madison Grant, the spirit of Leon Whitney, the spirit of Antonio Gramsci, the spirit of the age and his obsession with killing babies, the sooner you will find that you have become the next victim and iteration of the ideology that seeks to be as gods and decide who lives and who dies. My pastor Rob McCoy calls me the Charlie Kirk of the pro-life movement. I'm not bragging, don't clap yet. I'm telling you I've been raised up to be a pain in the butt, a stick in the eye and a fly in the ointment to the abortion industrial complex, the spirit of the age and his obsession session with wiping out the image of God from the earth. This is our moment. This is your moment to rebuild Christian resistance before it's too late. It's not about us. It's about the children. It's about the next generation. It's about our posterity to raise up a generation of Gideons who will walk out of that cave and start tearing down the high places of child sacrifice so you can look your king in the eye one day and say, Father, I did everything I could to save your children as an alternative religion was ripping them limb from limb. If you want to help me rebuild the White Rose resistance and build the Turning Point USA of the pro-life movement, where we play offense with a sense of urgency to tear down the high places of child sacrifice, scan the QR code. We're asking you to join at $35 a month. If you have more money, that's fine. But yes, I'm asking you for money because as Charlie says, there are fighters and there are people who help the fighters. And without the people who help the fighters, there are no fighters. So listen, this is what I've been raised up to do. I'm asking you to consider $35 a month to sign up tonight, this morning on the QR code. And we have our merch available for the first time on this Turning Point Faith tour all around the country outside in the, fo outside in the outside foyer right now. And if you join the White Rose Resistance at $35 a month or more, come up to the table and say, I just joined. Can I have a White Rose to remind yourself that you are part of the White Rose Resistance? I'll see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give him heaven, will you? Thank you guys for tuning in to that important message. And I think it's providential. I think it's providential that this message happened in the first Sunday gathering of the church since Prop 1 in California and various states wrote abortion through point of birth into their state constitution. I think it's providential that this is the message I had for the church at the end of the year, the same year Roe v. Wade got overturned. And as we head into the first year, um, of over 50 years of the spirit of Roe versus Wade over this country. Uh, this is the moment, and uh, I don't say those things uh, hyperbolically. Uh, it, this kind of really is it. This is the turning point as to whether we will have a new birth of freedom in America or whether we will descend back into the despotic chapters of human history if the good people wake up. We can turn everything around and give God a reason to show California and America, 
mercy. Thank you, Calvary Chapel Chino Hills. Your response was so incredible. And to the eight other churches that hosted this White Rose Resistance National Live Tour that helped catapult us and and uh, push us into 2023, which will be one of the most important years in the fight for life and in the culture war in my lifetime. Uh, and that's been true for some time. This is it. Uh, it's all hands on deck. So we would like to invite you as well to join the White Rose Resistance. Uh, you know how the game goes, guys. <laughs> uh, nonprofits can't rely on one or two big donors. Uh, you have to have lots of small donors to provide that recurring income and that uh, push uh, into being able to grow as an organization. So would you also consider joining the White Rose Resistance at $35 a month? Uh, most people can squeeze that out, especially if you can uh, get eggnog lattes at Starbucks this time of year. <laughs> Uh, we ask that you join us as we're beginning to hire, grow our organization to be the premier pain in the butt organization that drives the abortion industrial complex insane. Uh, and you know, if you're doing that, uh, you're doing something right. And so we're going to be in Washington, D.C. this January, and we are going to be launching effectively into 2023. Keep your eye out for our White Rose Resistance merch that's hitting the online store and Instagram on Cyber Monday. Uh, follow the White Rose Resistance Instagram and my Instagram to make sure you don't miss the contest we're doing this week, as well as the merch. The merch drop for when all of that becomes available online. They make great Christmas presents and we're getting them available for sale just in time for you to be able to give them for Christmas presents. So um, go on over to our Instagram, give us a follow, leave this show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Sign up at $35 a month because soon we will be announcing our White Rose Resistance live digital circle just for donors at $35 a month and up a once a month live call with me to educate and equip you our donors uh, to be more than just donors, but to be a voice for the unborn and to be effectively equipped to be a pro-life ninja and an ambassador for the unborn in this dark moment in American culture. Uh, all that's coming for you soon, but sign up. We appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Unaborted.